All right, good morning, church. Good morning, good morning. Uh, listen, uh, seems I forgot to turn my microphone on during the opening prayer. Uh, so I just wanted to start out with, uh, with prayer again with you, if, if you don't mind. And um, uh, before we get into our, our target verses here in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, um, quick departure today from our study in Matthew uh, to address some issues going on in the world and um, in the church around here in America and also the church around the world. Um, and I want to talk uh, to you and speak out of 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and, and Ephesians chapter 4. But uh, if you would, um, all I was saying earlier was uh, I was just uh, inviting you in and, uh, <laughs> and, and thanking you for joining us. And also, uh, if you would, uh, take some time out right now to share this video with all of your friends uh, and, and everything. That way we can uh, uh, invite people in. That way we can get the, the gospel message out to as many as, as we possibly can. But if you wouldn't mind, I'd love to pray with you this morning. God, please help us. Please uh, allow us, Lord, to see where we've gone wrong. Please allow us to see how imperfect we are and how desperately we need you, God. Lord, you've made me blatantly aware of my imperfections, God, even this morning, Lord, forgetting to turn on my own microphone, God. Lord, you've made us aware, you've made me aware of the imperfections, not only of our church here at First Baptist in Aransas Pass, but the church in America and the church worldwide, our imperfections, Lord, seeking to uh, follow after a holy and perfect God. God, we don't get it right, and I'm sorry that we don't. God, we mess up, and I'm sorry that we do. I want nothing more than perfection for you, God. I want nothing more than glory from your people for you. So, God, I, I ask that you would invite us into your glory, God, that you would bring us close, God. That as we seem to fall to pieces, God, that you would pick us up and bind us together, Lord. And help us to see that we are bound together in you. Help us to see, Lord, that we are a family. That we are a family of believers all across this earth. That seek your glory in all that we do. Help us, God, to love you more than we ever have today, God. To love you more then we love anything or anyone else today. Help us, O oh God, to see you in everything, in every part of life, to see your truth, to see your creation and your beauty, the things that you've made, to see them as you see them, God. Help us to see ourselves and all those people around us the way that you see us. And God, help us this morning to understand what you've written what you've communicated to us, what you've handed down through the ages that pertains to life and godliness. God, help us, Lord. Help us to worship you in spirit and truth here in the preaching and teaching of the word and the reading of your scripture. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, y'all. And we're going to start out in, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Now, I'm going to talk about building up the kingdom of God and building up the church and, 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 and what that really means. If we talk about building up the kingdom of God, what we have to know is that we're building up one another, okay? Because we are members of the kingdom as we are members of the family of God adopted in by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Because we're um, family and because we're part of the kingdom individually we have to take responsibility in building up those people around us all right think about it this way you don't need to build yourself up if you're building up everyone around you you will be built up in that process you don't have to worry so much about yourself and your own interests if you're worried about the interests of other people and being selfless with your time and with your energy and with your love namely then you can rest assured that you will be taken care of by the people around you. If we could all pour out into each other in this way, then the world would be a drastically different place, wouldn't it? Then even here in Aransas Pass or in the coastal Bend area, in Gregory and Portland and in Ingleside and Corpus Christi, would be vastly different, wouldn't it? Even the state of Texas would be vastly different. Even the United States of America would be vastly different if we held one another 
close. If we held each other close and, and, and desired to build each other up rather than tearing each other down, then we would have a far different place than we exist in today. And that is my hope. And that is my goal for today. Now I'm going to start in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and I'm going to go through. So join me there, if you will. And when you're there, church, say amen. Since we have these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Now, what is Paul talking about to the church in Corinth regarding promises? Since we have these promises, well, if I go just back just a little bit, this won't be on your screen, but I I just want to give you a little context. Paul is talking about not being unequally yoked with unbelievers. He's talking about tying ourselves to the world, something that I've preached against over and over, telling you that the world, church, the world is not our friend. We need to share the gospel with the world to bring them in that they would be adopted by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ into the kingdom of God. But Paul is talking to us, saying, listen, what fellowship does righteousness have with lawlessness? It has no fellowship. There is no fellowship between the church and the world. The church is separated from the world. It is apart from the world. It is being uh, sanctified by God. It is being made holy. Not only are you declared righteous at the time of your salvation, but you're also being made holy continuously throughout the course of your life in Christ. And that's called the process of sanctification. But then he says, I will make, God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And this is verse 16 of uh, 2 Corinthians 6. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now that's an incredible promise right there, isn't it? I will make my dwelling among them, and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst. He's talking about the, the midst of the world, the unbelievers. Go out from their midst, and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Now, if that's the only promise, if those are the only promises that we ever get in all of Scripture, then we would have enough. And in fact, I would argue that we would have more than enough. If these are the promises of God, promised to those who believe in Jesus Christ, then we need look no further for the beauty and the love and the grace and the mercy of God. Because we know that we are imperfect, don't we? We know that we need help every step of the way. We, need, we know that we need help in this life, in this world. And we know that our families need help in this life, in this world. We know that our children, our co-workers, we know that every single person that we drive amongst on the highways of this world, we know that we need help. And because we know that we need help, we should know that we should know where that help can come from. But because we know we need help, and God promises this, then we can rest assured that God is that help that we need and that he gives it. And so starting in verse seven, chapter 7 again in verse 1, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I'm acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. But we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only this, but his coming, or not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he has comforted, he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. 
though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. But also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. And now this is a remarkable chapter, amazing Because it shows us that tough conversations are hard to have. In Paul's writing of this letter to the Corinthians, his his letter before this, he knows that he grieved them with the letter because he told them to to, to, to come out from the world, to to leave the sexual immorality behind. We, We need to know that in the ancient church, in the ancient cities, in Corinth, Namely, there were uh, statues and temples erected to false idols, false gods. That they, it was a, a melting pot. It was, it was, it was, a, it was a, a trade center. There were, um, they had shores on either side of Corinth. And so they had people that, rather than go all the way around the peninsula, or, or all the way around Greece in order to get to a certain point, they would dock their boats and then they would carry their supplies and, and, and even their vessels over land because it was a shorter trip just to get to the other side. So we know that there were a lot of people. It was a bustling town. And because of that, it was a melting pot of all sorts of different religions, all sorts of different uh, false religions and different false gods that people worshipped. Because if we remember, we are talking about the Roman Empire at this time, which was a Hellenistic society, which said that, you know, hey, y'all, we want you, we want your gods, we want all that stuff, we want it all here, we want everybody to be able to do whatever they want to do. And so there was a melting pot for different types of belief. In the midst of all this, Paul is asking the Corinthian, the Corinthian church, the church at Corinth, to come out from the world, to stop with the unbelief, to stop with the worship of false idols, to stop with making allowances for the way of life that they used to live and to be wrapped up into the arms of Jesus Christ and to leave those old ways behind and to take up the new way in Christ. And this is what I urge you to do today, church, is to leave the world behind and take up the gospel of Jesus Christ. Leave the world and its tribulation behind and take up, take up the gospel of Jesus. Take up the love of God in Jesus Christ that He has for you. Take up the banner of Christ. Proclaim it over your house and over your workplace and over your life, over your family. Use it as a hedge of protection for your family that would uh, guard you from everything that the world would throw at you so that your hope in eternity would supersede any pain that you go through in this world. Because I assure you that there is pain in the world. There is suffering in this world. There is trial in life. Jesus Christ said, in this world you will have trouble, but I have overcome this world. And this is the promise for the believer, that we are overcomers in Jesus Christ. That in Him, because He has overcome the world, then we have a hope in glory that supersedes any pain or tribulation that this life will ever offer you. There is hope for you, Christian. There is hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that hope is in Him alone. You see, Paul's letter, his his goal with having this tough conversation with the Corinthian church, it wasn't so that he would harm them. And neither is my conversation with you at any point. It's not so that I would harm you. And neither is my conversation with any Christian or any person that's, that have, that's, that's an unbeliever, that doesn't believe in Jesus Christ. Because I know several people that don't believe in Jesus Christ. My, 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 my warning to them is, is not to harm them, but to, 
produce a godly grief in them, to produce a godly sorrow, a sorrow that leads to repentance, a sorrow that leads them to reconsider the things that they've done in their life and the things that they hold true in their life, the values that they live their life by, the moral standards by which they hold themselves to and everyone else to. It's to let them know that all the morality of the world will come crumbling and crashing down along with it as the world will pass away. Jesus Christ actually is ushering in a new world. When we leave this life from this world, there will be a new creation, a new earth that we will live on forever. This is one of the things that a lot of Christians don't even know. I remember having a conversation with my grandfather-in-law in his 90s, or in late 80s, and then as he turned 90, and I was talking to him about the new creation, about new world, the new world that, that Christ is going to usher in. It's going to be a new heaven and a new earth that new Jerusalem that will descend out of heaven from God. And he was overjoyed with it because he was at the end of his life. That that's something he could look forward to. And I want to encourage you with that today, Christian, that you have something far greater to look forward to in Christ than you ever will have in the world. I am pleading with you today to give your life to Jesus Christ and to follow him for the rest of your life in obedience to live your life as though it matters. Don't live your life as though it doesn't matter. And again, these words are not to harm you, but to produce a godly grief in you that would lead to repentance without regret. And so Paul's goal was this same thing. This is what he says. And so they repented. And he knew that it hurt them, but he also knew that because of the testimony of Titus, They repented and it produced that godly grief that he was after. It was always his goal. He wanted them to repent of their wickedness and to be led to God. And he wanted them to be encouraged and to live for God. And they were. And Titus reported back this glowing report. You know how when you talk about something or someone to somebody and you say, hey, listen, I want you to come check out, man, my friend, he's awesome. And then your, your other family member, your friend meets this other friend you were talking all this noise about, hey, he's awesome, he's awesome. The person had a bad day or something like that. And the person's not so awesome in their side. And they're like, I don't know what he was talking about. That person was not awesome. Or you can say, hey, man, I want you to check out this restaurant. It's so good. It's so good. And then the people that you recommend the restaurant to, they go to the restaurant, they order their food's cold, you know, the steak's overdone or underdone or whatever it is. I don't know about people thinking steak's underdone. I don't know about y'all. But anyway, listen, when you go and you have dinner at that restaurant and then all of a sudden you don't have a great experience, you're like, I don't know what you were talking about, man. This restaurant ain't no good. The service was bad. The food was bad. It was cold. I don't know what you're talking about. But what Paul is saying is that he sent Titus to them and he had a glowing recommendation of that church in Corinth to Titus before he went. And then when Titus comes back, he says, you were right, man. You were right. These people, they're so loving. They, I, they read your letters. It made them sad, and, but it made them think. It made them take stock of their lives. It made them contemplate about what is this life all about really anyway? And because life matters to them, and because Jesus Christ matters to them, they were amazing, Titus tells Paul. And because Paul gets this glowing report, he's like, oh, oh, thanks be to God for this. And so he boasts about them, and he boasts about his confidence in them, because their confidence is in the Lord Jesus Christ, and this is what he's communicating to them. He's saying, listen, don't don't get swayed by the world. Don't take up the mantle of the world once again. You've got to leave that behind. You've got to take up the mantle of Jesus Christ. You've got to take up the cause of Christ. You've got to take up the uh, commands of Christ. You've got to take up the things of Christ, the people of Christ. And you've got to build each other up. And so Paul is building them up with this letter. Because when it all boils down and we need to have hard conversations with people, we need to know that though it hurts them for a time, it should produce repentance in them if they are believers. But first of all, we need to know why we're having the conversation with them in the first place. Is it just because they upset us because our preferences are different? Because we prefer to do things a certain way and they prefer to do things another way. And it's not sinful, it's just a preference uh, dispute. See, those are just, those things really don't matter, preferences. They really don't. In the grand scheme of things, 
in the kingdom of God, they, they don't matter. They're not sinful. It's just, I prefer to do things one way. You prefer to do things a different way. I prefer to, wor- I prefer to, to wear this today. You prefer to wear something different today. Maybe you wish I was dressed different. Oh, well. You know what I'm saying? That's just the way it goes. But we have to go in with an objective. We have to go into these conversations with an objective, with a goal of building that person or those people up with the truth. And this was Paul's goal. He wanted to build them up with the truth. And so my goal today is building you up with the truth. Go with me, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. You see, if we go in with the right objective, church, then we cannot fail. If you go in with the right purpose, you cannot fail. And this is regardless of whether or not the person repents. If they repent, awesome, successful on every account, in every way. If they don't repent, at least you've gone in and you've done your job. Your task is completed in the name of Jesus Christ by going in and sharing the truth with them to build them up. And we cannot forget that the Apostle Paul practices giving truth to believers. This is his way of building them up, is telling them the truth, the way that things really are. Y'all, listen. I know that the truth is hard to hear because it challenges who we are and who we've been. But I assure you that the truth is what we need, every single one of us. It is what we need. Too many times we don't do the same thing in our own relationships and we allow people to walk right off the deep end without even a warning because we don't give them the truth because we think it's too hard to say because it might be too hard to hear. And that is one objective of the truth. It's a warning. Don't let people walk off into the deep end without a warning. I know you wouldn't allow your children to go into the deep end of a pool without warning without some kind of flotation device, especially if they can't swim. And this is what this is for us. This is our life raft in the open sea of this world. Paul wants to throw us a raft. He wants to throw us a line because he doesn't want us to sink into the abyss of the world. Instead, he wants us to go on in glory with him. And this is what I want for you, church. A warning is meant to bring life to the hearer. The truth is meant to bring life to those who listen. And we need to be unafraid to give warnings, but we also got to remember that we've got to do this in love. In love, y'all. I haven't ever really heard about anybody being screamed at or ridiculed or talked down to that's responded in a good way. I've never really heard about that in my life. In fact, I can tell you right now, I've never responded in a positive way to it. Maybe you have. Maybe you're better than me. Congratulations. But it won't last. We need to deliver the truth in love. In love. You see, with unbelievers, it's different. They don't care about what the truth really is, the Bible says that they consider the things of God folly, that the, 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 the truth of God, the gospel of grace, the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's foolishness to the world. If we try to get them to follow biblical principles, they're going to fail at every turn because they don't believe in the same thing. They don't believe in Jesus. So with unbelievers, it's different. And this is also when you start, you know, setting down your Christian principles and the commands of Christ onto people who don't believe in Jesus, this is also the point in the conversation where they call you judgmental, tell you you're judging them, they call you a hypocrite, all this other kind of stuff. 
because they don't hold the Bible as their standard and they don't believe that our God is the truth. Because of that, we have grace on them. We dispense grace over them. We are graceful with them. We are merciful and we love them through their pains and we love them through their struggles so that they know that our God is the very God who enables us to love them in this way. This is what we do with unbelievers. We, in essence, are a live portrayal of Jesus Christ right before their eyes. Can you do that today, church? Can you be a live portrayal of the Lord Jesus Christ to the best of your ability in Christ? And all of this while continuing to share the gospel with them. And I'm talking about sharing the actual words of the gospel. Not just living in love before them, but sharing the message of Jesus Christ with them. We need to remember that the gospel message is primarily and first a spoken message. It is a spoken message. They are words that we are given from God that are seasoned with salt. And these are the very words that we need to communicate to people. Remember that the gospel has the power to save. Your life does not have the power to save. We may think, oh, if I just... If I just live in front of them, if I'm just nice to them, if I just serve them, if I just do this to them, if they do this for them. Listen, people want to be served all over this world. The government is made up of people who want to give out things to people so that they can get votes for themselves and so that they can stay in power. People, listen, people can be won over in, by deeds. By doing good things, they can be one to you, but they will not be one to Christ without the gospel message of Jesus Christ accompanying those good deeds. This world wants things for themselves. This world is selfish. It's not novel. It's not a novel, a new idea to you know, help people out. Those things aren't new. But you know what's life-saving is the very message of the gospel of Jesus Christ that tells us that we rebelled against a holy God and because we did all these things wrong in our life called sin, that we missed the mark. The word sin means to miss the mark. Because we missed the mark that God set, that we will be punished because of it because unholy people cannot be in the presence of a holy God. He requires, doesn't just desire it, He requires holiness and righteousness in order even to be in His presence. And because men and women and children could not be righteous, they could not be holy, could not be perfect throughout their lives. And we see this over the course of thousands of years that we've been in existence here in this world. Because we could not be, we needed something, we needed some kind of help, we needed some kind of intervention, we needed somebody to come in and show us how to do it, somebody to come in and not only show us how to do it, but to save us from the burden of having to do it. And that very person was Jesus Christ Himself. God came into this world and became flesh. His name is Jesus and He's calling us to Himself because every single person who believes in Him will not die along with this world, but every single person instead who believes in Him will have life eternally with Him in the kingdom of God. And that is the gospel message that Jesus Christ did what we could not. That we needed a Savior and He came to save we need the actual words of the gospel. The gospel has the power. Once you take the gospel message out, there's no power. I don't care how much good you do in this world. I don't care how many hungry children you feed in this world. Without the gospel, there's no power. And let's go back to verse 11 of 2 Corinthians 7. He says, for see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves. What indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. 
So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. I like this part because it's the result. Paul's letting them know that the way that they've lived their lives and responded to the message that he sent is the right response. That's the way to do it. Oh man, when somebody brings an issue to me and I find out that I did something wrong or said something wrong or man, I said a wrong Bible verse or called it something else or I don't know what I've, you know, I've done all kinds of things in my life. You know, said, oh, this is Ephesians chapter 2, this, and all of a sudden it's not. It's like Philippians chapter 2 or something. And I had like, you know, just a little, you know, little brain jumble or something like that. Or if it's because I've wronged somebody and made them feel inferior. And I've talked down to somebody when I didn't mean to. And maybe in my flesh in that moment, I did mean to. And I did, I did, I, I acted it out because... I didn't keep those thoughts in. I, I didn't take and hold every thought captive. I let it come out of my mouth. And I've made people feel a way that they didn't want to feel. And a way that I don't ever want them to feel. When these issues are brought to me, and I'm, I, I hope and I pray that when issues like this are brought to you about your own life, that there would be a, a sort of, he's, he, this is what he says, uh, it's a, uh, eagerness to clear yourselves. What eagerness to clear yourselves? Oh, I, I want to make it right. I want to apologize. I want to do something different. He says, what indignation, what fear. What fear, why fear? Because, oh God, I don't want, I don't want the Lord to look down on me and be displeased with me. Because I know who God is and I know what he's done for me. I don't want my mom and my dad on earth to look down on me and be disappointed in me. But a million Million, million, million times more. I don't want God to do this. Because of the fear of the Lord. And I know who He is and what He's capable of. But because of that fear that I have, I can approach Him in confidence, knowing that He says, hey, but listen, have no fear in coming to me. Because He will clear you. And He will clear your name forever in the scrolls of eternity. What indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment, y'all... We should feel bad for the things that we do that we say are that are wrong. When we make people feel inferior or like they're less than, or when we make people feel like, you know. We got to know that these things are wrong. And it should produce in us those feelings of punishment. Where you're just racking your brain, why did I do it like that? God, I'm so sorry. But this is that eagerness that Paul is longing for. And this is that eagerness that we should all be longing for, that we should want to correct our behavior. We should want to correct our speech. We should want it to be seasoned with salt. We should want to be the light of the world. And I pray that you want that today, church, and that you act on it. So Paul's encouraging them. He's commending them for their repentance and for justice. Repentance always comes alongside true belief in Jesus Christ. Repentance always comes alongside faith. Remember, repentance is turning. It's turning. It's turning back to God. It's the thoughts of the heart, the words, and the life. This is what repentance is. The thoughts of the heart, the words, and the life. You see, a simple declaration of faith without the life to follow that declaration of faith is not a true profession. The scripture tells us that faith without works is dead. That faith doesn't really exist if it is not accompanied by good works thereafter. Not that we work to believe, but that we work after we believe because of the one who worked on our behalf, Jesus Christ. But I do want you to know that if you have professed faith in Jesus Christ and you've not exhibited the life of a Christ follower, I want you to turn to him now for life and salvation and give your life to him once and for all. Knowing that you are being pursued by the Holy One. And verse 12 is pretty nice because he's telling them that he isn't taking sides. It doesn't matter to him who said what or who did what to who. 
just that they worked it all out. This world wants you to pick sides, church. They want you to believe that there is only one right way, or that there is only one right thing and one wrong thing in this world, and that they are at odds with each other constantly. Now, the one right belief is Christianity. It is Jesus Christ. Everything else is foolishness. Everything else is, is not real. Everything else will pass away with this world. But the world wants you to believe in all sorts of instances that it's either this way or that way. And those are the only two ways. Think about in politics. It's either Republican or it's Democrat. And one of them is right and one of them is wrong. That's just not the case. They're both wrong. Because they don't follow after Christ. And they are not driven by biblical principles. No matter what they want, I want to see what they do. You can tell me all day long what you want to happen, but what do you do? That's what I want to know. And this is what Paul is getting at. Listen. What have you done? And what they did, which Paul is commending them for, is they repented. Because it produced a godly grief in them. Let us all pray that our American government is driven to godly grief and repentance in the name of Jesus Christ. That they would all bow their knee and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen. He wrote to them so that in working it out, these Corinthians, they could see for themselves who they really were. You can see who you really are, church, if you're willing to forgive. Because if you're not willing to forgive, that will also tell you who you are. If you're not willing to love, that'll tell you something about yourself. But if you are, that should tell you something else. Paul wants them to know who they are in Christ because God wants us to know who we are in Him. Whether we're for Him or against Him. And in working it out, it showed that they cared and He wanted them to see this. He wanted not only to be encouraged Himself, but... He wanted for them to be as encouraged by their own actions as he was and as encouraged as Titus was. God wants you to know what you're capable of when you follow his commands, church. Because you're capable of so much more than you give yourself credit for. In Christ, who has all power, tell me that you're not capable of great things in God who has all power. Tell me you're not. Because I don't believe that. In fact, I believe that you're capable of so much more than you even dare to think or imagine because of the one who lives in you after you profess your faith in Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus Christ has overcome this world. Jesus wants you to know what life is like with him. And he wants you to know what life is like with him in you. And so remember that the truth in love is always the way to go, as Paul did. Though it may sting any reproof and correction, if it's done in love, should produce repentance in the man or the woman of God. And then there is the preference battle that's fought among believers that I mentioned earlier. People who grumble and complain against one another end up tearing each other down. This is dealt with this was dealt with in the early church as well as today. It's not something new, but an old foe. Go back to that passage I mentioned earlier, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 29. <clears throat> Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Now that's a message for us today, isn't it, church? All the things you see on social media, all the things you see in news ads, all the things you see all over the world going on. Paul's telling us, let, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion. No corrupting talk, none. None? I can't even say it. No. I know that they hurt you. I know that they made you feel a certain way. 
I know that you've been hurt and you've experienced trouble and pain and suffering in life. I know that. Because we all do. But it does not give us license in this world to allow corruption to fester in our hearts so that we speak that corruption. And then we infect all those people who hear that corruption spoken. That's what we do, church. When we speak with corruption, the corruption that comes from our hearts and our minds because of the hurts that we've experienced, when we speak those things, they are infectious. Look at the cities burning. Look at the people dying. Look at the pain in the streets. It's because nothing was dealt with in a godly way. And it hurts. But can we build one another up through it? Can we utilize the moment to build up rather than to tear down? Don't get me wrong, all the world systems that are wicked, I want them torn to pieces. But for the people, the people involved in these systems, what about them? Should we just throw them to the wayside, cast them out? Kick them to the curb? No. We've got to bring them in. We've got to share the gospel. We've got to come together. We've got to unify. But we can't do that with corruption coming from our lips. We cannot allow ourselves to be corrupted by the world. Let's go to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. I want to show you just a little example of how we can help others out who are caught in sin and who have fallen. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, anyone, any, anyone, any, right? That's everybody. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Gentleness. In a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Tempted to do what? To behave just like them. To not be gentle. To cut them down rather than to build them up. Instead of picking them up off the, the floor when they've fallen into transgression, kicking them while they're on the floor. That's corrupted. That's corruption. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Which law of Christ? To bear the burden of sin for everyone who places their faith in Jesus Christ for all time. We are being Christ-like when we are bearing with one another in our failures. When we are picking each other up, when we are gathering each other in, this is when we are being like Christ. Paul tells us here that, that corrupting talk actually grieves the Holy Spirit of God. Why? Because it divides the church. And it divides families. Paul is beckoning back to the teaching of Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19. Listen to this. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one whose souls discord among brothers. Six. 
six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. He despises these things. It literally grieves the Holy Spirit. This is what Paul is telling us. He's telling them and us by extension today, remember God. In all you do, church, remember God. Remember who you belong to. Remember who saved you. Remember who picked you up out of the dust when your hand was outstretched because there was no one else to help. Remember the one that did help. Remember God. Remember how he cleaned you up. Remember how he brought you close. Remember God. And all that you do, remember God. Before you're going to say something to somebody that you know may go... Remember God. Remember whose you are. Before you do something that you know you might regret, remember God. Before you speak, church, remember God. Before you speak, church, be different. Let's be different. We see the world divided more than many of us ever have in our lifetime right now. The world now. And the corruption that lies in the world now. Yet some in the church want to do the very same thing as the world. They want to throw stones. They've taken up with the Pharisees. I'm here to ask you today, church. Who among you is without sin? If you're without sin, then cast the first stone. If not, let's just drop our rocks. And instead of the Pharisees rushing away when Jesus called them to do that, because we're the church and we're different, let's gather in. You see, some in the world and some in the church want to be driven by politics. They want to be driven by preferences, by social media memes, by conspiracies. But I don't need the church if I'm looking for corruption. I can get corruption in the world, so why would I come to the church if I want corruption? So if you are corrupting the church, you are not part of the church. You are part of the world. And I'm calling you and asking you to repent today of your sin. To be wrapped up into the arms of Christ. To let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. But only, only the kind of talk that's, that's going to build people up. I can guarantee you that people will not flock to the church that harbors corruption. Why? Because the church is supposed to be the safe haven. The church is supposed to be the refuge. The refuge for the sick, the, drown, the downtrodden, the downcast, the outcast, the weary, the hurting, the suffering, the addict, the afflicted, the abused, the abuser. The church is the safe haven for the world that has gone to the world and everywhere else in all of creation for answers, but has not found those answers. At times in people's lives, or for most people, the church is the last place they come. But praise be to God that they've come. Because when they come to the church, they've come to Christ. We're called to be different. This is who we're supposed to be. This is the cloth that we're cut from, the very garment of Jesus Christ himself, both stained and washed by his blood. This is our garment. Why would the world want our Christ if our Christ were just like the world? It wouldn't, and, and, and they would just stay in the world, and I wouldn't blame them, but I tell you that our Christ is not like the world. He is far different. He is far greater. There's no comparison. He's far more loving and with power and eternity as part of His essence. God is different than the world. 
It would be like going to see a surgeon, needing him to fix my eyes. I've been wearing glasses my whole life. I, I can't hardly see. I, I see everything blurry. I, I see like a veil with a veil over everything. Everything's foggy. Everything is blurred. I can't make people's faces out without my glasses on. I can't hardly even read these words without my glasses on. If I would go to a surgeon and ask him to fix my eyes, and then after having the surgery, after everything, that the buildup, the hope, the desperation, having him, wanting him to fix my eyes, coming out of the surgery, and after him taking the bandages off my eyes and saying, look in the mirror, can you see yourself? And all I could see was blurred, faded, the same things as I've seen before. I would never go back to that doctor. In fact, I would tell him he's a fraud. He's a phony. He didn't heal me at all. He took my money, but he didn't help me. All of the hope lost. This is what it's like to have a corrupted church in America. Why would we call people to corruption? Instead, let's be different. Let's call people to Christ. And let's help build people up. So I'm here today warning you against this corruption. And give grace to unbelievers while you share the gospel with them. Pursue them in love. Don't pursue them with malice. We need to fight, church. We need to fight to stay together in a world where the enemy will play at your emotions. He will play at your feelings, your weaknesses and preferences to try and divide the body of Christ. Don't let him do it. The Bible tells us if we resist the devil, he will flee. So resist him with the very word of God. Hearkening back to Luke 4, Matthew 4, Jesus Christ in the wilderness being tempted by Satan himself. This is what has caused rifts in the church, denominational splits, and even death in the history of the church worldwide. An example of corrupting talk in the Bible is the grumbling and complaining spirit. Grumbling in the Greek means to groan, to sigh, or to think or speak negatively about someone without biblical cause. Without biblical cause. It's actually the opposite of love, which is why the Bible says that it's a sin. It's not loving. Now in life, we grumble and complain over just about everything, right? Everything that either makes us uncomfortable or that we aren't used to or that we just don't like. Truth is, we're grumblers and complainers, and complainers a lot of us. But Christ didn't call us to live this way. Instead, he called us to live peacefully with all people. Romans chapter 12 and verse 18. Listen to this. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. It's awesome. Yes, Lord, give me more of this. And Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 14 and 15, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So without holiness, you will not see the Lord. Thanks be to God and Jesus Christ that he is our holiness. Verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Are you bitter today? Are you bitter about something that happened in your life? Are you harboring a resentment? Has it parked on your shores? Are you giving it cover are you guarding your resentment? I'm asking you today, church, and pleading with you to give it to God and to forgive as the Lord Jesus Christ has forgiven you. You see, the Bible has quite a lot to say about grumbling and complaining. Too often, preferences cause Christians to cannibalize each other and make unity and love expendable. Negative criticism comes too easily when the Bible urges us to build each other up. Negative criticism of someone else who's seeks to serve the Lord is unfair, it is unwarranted, and it is ungodly. In James chapter 5 and verse 9, James tells us, Don't, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, 
the judge is standing at the door. Oh my gosh. It may have been a while since you heard that one. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. In other words, you are being watched. God can see. Even what's in your heart now, God can see. And if what's in your heart is a root of bitterness, if it is a grumbling and complaining spirit, I beg you, ask God to change you. And I promise you, he will. Remember, we've got to build each other up, not let corrupting talk come out of our mouths, which grieves the Holy Spirit. Honestly, when I'm, when I'm grumbling and complaining about something or somebody, you know what it makes me realize is, uh, it makes me realize what a wreck I am and how much I need the Lord. It really does. And, I, and this, I, that's why I understand the words of Paul in, in 2 Corinthians 7. He's second, talking to them, he's saying, listen, what indignation, what zeal, what punishment. Like, I, I get that. I understand it. Because in my own time with the Lord, I, I ask him, Lord, show me where I'm wrong. God, help me, God. Help me. I, want, I, I ask God to bless me with wisdom, to show me what's right and what's wrong, to show me what he wants for me what the truth is, and where the lies exist. I am in deep prayer about this with God daily, daily. And he shows me how wrong I am all the time about all sorts of stuff, even things in my own home. But it makes me realize what a wreck I am. It doesn't make me happy. It doesn't make me think that I'm right all the time. Instead, it, it makes me realize that I'm sinning while I do that. Folks, we, we should handle all things with the Word of God. Nothing more, nothing less. The Word of God. The Word of God. The Word is enough 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says this, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God or the woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So that you could be ready, ready to work and wring out your Life for the gospel. Work and be ready. Train you. Teach you what's right. Give you wisdom from heaven. The word of God. All scripture. All scripture is breathed out by God. And it'll help you with everything you need. We need to have a scriptural basis for our grievances. And also for the healing in those times. We see examples of this with Jesus and the Pharisees and in the letters of the apostles. So don't look to the world to handle the issues that you face in your family, church. Don't look to the world for that. Because the world ain't going to help you. Look to God. He is the help that you need. Don't look to the world to handle the issues you face at work or while you're out at the mall or while you're driving. Learn to live with God in relationship through following what he has given you to live by in his scripture. Keep your conversation with God open and let him into every aspect of your life. Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 12, I want to close with this. Oh, this is so encouraging to me. And I pray it is to you. Put on then... As God's chosen ones, you were chosen. Holy and beloved. What are we to put on compassionate hearts? Kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. 
bearing with one another. And if anyone, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. Yes, God, as the Lord has forgiven you, thank you, Lord, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony with love underneath it all, church. You will never go wrong if that love is the love of Christ given to you through His grace. Let's pray. Lord, I, I lift Your name on high today. I love to sing Your praises. God, I, I ask You, Lord, to forgive me, Lord, where I've fallen short. Lord, I ask you to forgive all of us, Lord, all of us here, all everybody watching. Lord, forgive us where we've fallen short. Help us, God. Help us to know, Lord, what's right and what's wrong. Help us to know you, Lord, in a deeper way than we ever have before. Help us, God. Alleviate the fear and the anxiety within our hearts, God, and draw us in. And help us, Lord, to build one another up with the truth of God. And help us to be built up in the truth of God and to receive the truth of God in love. In Jesus' name, amen.